morning. What a blessing it is to be able to gather with you and worship our God together, sing songs, praise his name, enjoy the communion of his saints. It's, it's, it's a gift, it's a blessing, it's a, it's a balm to, to the soul. And, and I'm very glad and blessed and humbled by the opportunity that I've been given to share with you a little bit on no, it's not true. It's a lot. It's not a little bit. It's a lot on Ruth. Um, and, and, and we're going to be studying the whole book, four, four chapters, 85 verses. Um, what an interesting book. It's very, very, very interesting. It takes, uh, it takes um, 12, 15 minutes to read it. So I challenge you to, for this month, take 12, 15 minutes a day, read the whole book, I assure you that every week, every day that, that passes, you're going to be finding more, more, and more stuff. And it's, it's just amazing how much um, God can put in, in, in just 85 verses. So we're going to dig in very, we're going to try to dig as, as deep as we can and, and, and try to see uh, what God has for us in his word. Um, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, today you use your word that your spirit moves among us and that you bring confrontation but at the same time comfort to our souls. I pray that you will encourage us, that you would make us aware of our sin, that you will make us humble in your presence. Pierce our hearts with your word. Renew joy and peace and hope in our hearts today. I pray in the name of our precious Savior, Lord, and King, Jesus. Amen. All right, a little bit of context, and there actually is a lot of context. Um, the, the, the author of Ruth, which, by the way, we don't know who the um, human author was. It, it is credited to Samuel as a way to prove the lineage and the genealogy of, of David, of King David. It, would, it was written, um, some people say, like halfway the, the, the reign of, of King David, and it was a, a, a way to, to prove the lineage of, of David um, all the way back to, um, to, to the uh, promise to Abraham. So it's one of the intentions is to, to prove, and, and, and you will see that, at the end of the book, but there's a lot of things that the author of the book, the writer of the book, assumes that the audience knows. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that, um, there's a lot of uh, uh, economy of words. So they're, they're little phrases, but they're really, really packed with, with information. So let's, let's, div, let's dive in, in, in this context. Many commentators reflect on the beautiful work of literature that Ruth is. In fact, many historians, theologians, and even casual readers of this book can relate to the magnificent craftsmanship of this story. The story of Ruth, as beautiful as it is, invites us to consider a manifest contrast between loss and gain, famine and abundance, death and birth, chaos and control. The four chapters and 85 verses, we see a display of numerous aspects of God's character, his plans, his ways, grace, providence, and steadfast love. 
Ultimately, the book of Ruth aims to provide to the reader a glimpse of the bigger picture of God's redemptive work throughout history and how he remains faithful to his promises no matter the apparent state of the world. In the narrative of Ruth, we see ordinary people facing ordinary challenges and a somehow ordinary life. This, in a providential way, should help us even more to apply what we learn in scriptures and as so many other of the characters in the Bible, we see that Ruth is an ordinary person taken by an extraordinary God, just like us. The book of Ruth shows us a God that is always at work, not always in a necessary flashy way, but always active behind the scenes. We are encouraged by God's providence, a word that we as Christians should use more, and, and, and that is present in every scene of this book. And to put things simple, we could define God's providence like this. Providence is nothing more than the way in which the power of God makes the universe move towards its predetermined goal and design. So we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in, in, in coincidences. We believe in God's providence and God's control and God's predetermined goal. Providence is the continuing means of God through which he causes all events and the physical and moral universe to conform to their original design with which he created them. Uh, and, the, and the comment of Strong also says that providence is God's attention concentrated everywhere. But the issue, I would say, with Ruth, and as, I, as I mentioned, is that it's packed with little gold nuggets of information here and there. Things that the author placed in the narrative to expand and load this story with significance. So Ruth presents this minor inconvenience in the presentation of the story, the characters and scenes that are unfolding. And to understand this book, we need to do a, a proper introduction. As we say, context is king. Um, so a little bit of a deeper or deepened context for the book. The, the backdrop, the opening line of the book of Ruth, in the days when the judges ruled. These are, um, there are two significant episodes in the history of Israel that we need to have present. The first one is the, history, the story of, of Joshua. And after Moses' death, Joshua is appointed, anointed as the new leader of Israel that would start the process of taking the promised land from the evil nations that occupied this geographical area. In the book of Joshua, we see, <coughs> sorry, yeah, we see how the people are obedient. We see that God blessed these people with wonderful and amazing victories over their enemies. God uses Joshua and his heroes to defeat the great nations of Canaan. Um, kids might, might be, might be uh, more, more um, aware of the, of the walls of Jericho. It's like a very magnificent victory that, that God brings to his people without, without raising a sword. Just screaming and shouting and marching. And I think there's, there's um, trumpets. So just loud noises. And they turn down the amazing big walls of Jericho. So the nations fear the name of God and his majesty, uh, and his glory begins to be manifested everywhere in the land, everywhere where his people go. The obedience of the people and the conquest of the land are the axis of the story of Joshua. But then 
We have this, this turn of events. We have the tragic continuation in the book of Judges. The plan originally was that through the leadership of Joshua, God will defeat the major nations occupying um, uh, Canaan. And then with the establishment of the 12 tribes and their position in the land, they would have to deal with the minor nations or pagan tribes in there. But what we see is that the people of God, the people of Israel, disobeyed the commandment of God, entering in the seven cycles of judgment. There are five manifested reasons for the cycles to occur. Uh, Disobedience and not driving the Canaanites out out of the land. There is idolatry. Wicked marriages, Um, the the Israelites were not allowed to marry outside of the nation of Israel. They were not obeying the the judges that God had um, raised. And they left God after the death of the judges. They turned back to their sinful ways. And then the sequence of events that take place. So Israel left God. They turned away from God. God disciplined them by allowing them to be defeated and subjugated by by these other nations. And then Israel begs and and turns to God in repentance for his release. And God raised judges that will um, officiate as the um, leaders or military leaders of, of the people of Israel. We have some mentions of the nation of Moab that is mentioned in the first chapter of Ruth but also mentioned in the book of Judges. And one, of the, one example will be, will be in Judges, um, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Judges, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, or Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, the, the, the ancient city of Jericho, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. We are introduced um, to Ehud as a judge of Israel that God will use to liberate his people from the claws of this pagan king. You can mark that story in your Bibles, read it later. I tell you, movies and and series of our days fall short on on that story. It, It is impressive. It's amazing. Like, you should read it. And, you know, any, any movie, TV show, like, nothing, nothing like that. I can't, see, I can't, I can't tell you the story because there's, there's, there's kids. It's a, it's a not-safe-for-work type of story. Another detail uh, for the context of the story of Ruth is the famine in the land. There is a famine mentioned in the book of Judges during the period where Gideon acted as judge, but there is no exact time period of this famine, so, which brings some difficulties to set a, a date, uh, a period for this story. We don't know for sure when does this, this story of Ruth take place. There's some commentators that would say that it was related to this period of time of Gideon or... or um, other famines that, that occur, but that are not um, recorded in any of the biblical, uh, of the canonical biblical um, writings. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. We don't know, and I think it's it's fine that we, we don't have it. In those days, the days of the judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Judges 21, 25. Ends the book of, of Judges with that phrase. So in honor of time, we will use this as an introduction, but uh, my, my desire, my idea, and my hope is that during the week, I can, I can send through message, through email, um, a little bit of more of the context information, because there, there's a lot that I had to left out. So uh, there's a lot of things that I'm not going to be able to mention today, but I'm going to send those things through the week so you can have a fun time reading that stuff too. So you're not going to get rid of me um, tomorrow. Um, back to our text in Ruth. We have then the setting for our story, a period when the faith of Yahweh had become more than a little corrupted. We are introduced to this family. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to Sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So in this time of national covenant faithlessness, we are introduced to this family exercising covenantal faithlessness. Now this seems to be the case for this specific family, the family of Elimelech, and not a national migration or a mass migration. We are not... uh, Invited to assume that there is a large group of people. Could have been the another, other families would have moved out of the, of the land. But the focus in here is in the family of Elimelech and Naomi. We are uh, invited to contemplate maybe one of the first topics, the first themes on, in the book of Ruth. And, and that is that God's people are not exempt from suffering. The, the non-coincidental introduction of this story can help us to consider a couple of things. The famine is part of God's providential plan. And again, providence is different from a miracle. A miracle is an event, a non-repeatable contradiction of an otherwise demonstrable law of nature. If you mix water with, with dirt, you get mud. That's a law of nature. There's nothing, nothing miraculous about it. But giving sight to a blind man, that is miraculous. It's breaking the laws, the established laws. It shouldn't happen, but it does. When we see God's providence in action, he is not changing the laws of nature, but it leads us to see how God, behind the scenes, is working everything for his glory. So there, there is famine, which means that there is a drought, no rain, no crops, no food, no animals. And no animals and no grain, it means no offerings. There's no offerings and no sacrifices. So you see that this is not only an issue of the material, it's an issue of the spiritual. There's no way for these people to relate to God. There's no way for them to reach out. And God is behind all of this. You can come with me to... 
Deuteronomy 28.15, this is the, the, the chapter 28 of Deuteronomy where um, God gives blessings and curses. The covenant blessings and the covenant curses. Um, verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then if we jump to verses 23 and 24. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under yours shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. And God is faithful to his covenant. This is, this is God fulfilling his promises. So we know that what is going on is happening because of God. And it's because of God. And it isn't because God is it's mean? Of course not. God is working his providence to show to his people that obedience is in their best interest. And God is operating in the framework of his covenant. He is being faithful. And if you obey and seek me, you will be blessed. And if you turn from me and disobey my commands, you will be cursed. We're praying for the persecuted church. And the world, you will have afflictions. But take heart. But take heart. Because Jesus has won. But when we face persecution, you know what we're facing? <laughs> the providence of God, the, the promise of God being fulfilled. And, and, and that. So we pray for our brothers and sisters for endurance. We don't deny that they're suffering. We take part of that. But we recognize that it's part of the promises that God fulfills. If you disobey my commands, you will be cursed. So in, in this time then is when we see the downward spiral of sin and shame. What would be the right response, the right attitude, the right action to take? Turn to God. This is what God is doing. He's shouting through this providential events, turn back to me. Seek me with all of your heart. Repent. But we see that Elimelech didn't turn away. He took his family away to the land of Moab. 81 kilometers east from Israel. And this is what we know about Elimelech. That in the time of need, he took the man-centered decision. The man-wise decision. A man whose name means my God is king. That is the meaning of the name of Elimelech. He didn't consider God as his ruler. And he defied his commands and he dragged his family with him. The appropriate response would have been one of repentance and turning to Yahweh with all of their hearts and, and brokenness and need and dependence. But they not only turned away, they also went away. 
And I'm not just like kicking Elimelech in the, in the floor. <laughs> As I say this, I'm thinking how, how I've been doing. How I'm making my own decisions. How am I turning, if I'm turning to God? Or am I turning away and going away? The appropriate response then, it would have been repentance. Turning to God. Going back to Him. And we know that this decision was not meant to be a definite, a definitive one. This man went to sojourn, or sojourn in the country of Moab to, to have a, a limited state in the land. The word sojourn is not used in a sense of perpetual staying. In this case, it's more until things get better type of sense. I'm, I'm thinking how, how the conversation went, went with, with Naomi. We need to leave, we need to go. But we'll stay there till things get better, and we'll come back. But he died. He didn't come back. He didn't make it back. And you know that it's a, a great dishonor for our Israelite to die in foreign pagan land. He died away from his land. He died away from his family. He died without honor. And Naomi, Malon, and Killian stayed for a period of 10 years. Verse, um, verse 2 says, They went into the country. They stayed in the land. They dwelled. And the, and the word they stayed in the country, they dwelled with these people, means that they, they embraced their culture. They embraced their religion. They embrace their ways. This is, this is the, the meaning of they stayed. And they stayed for 10 years. 12 years in, the, in the, the whole process. 10 years in which the sons of Elimelech follow the pattern of disobedience of his father. Took, took for themselves Moabite women to marry. And the word when they said took, they took women... It's, and, 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 and the context of taking women for marriage, it's never used in a positive way. The word here has a, a, a very gruesome, gloomy sense. It's not pretty. They, they, they didn't, like, went on dates. It wasn't a rom-com. It was, it was ugly. The, the meaning of that word, that they took women's. And then we are introduced to these two women, Moabites, Ruth, and Orpah. And again and again, we see throughout the narrative of scriptures, people making their own decisions without considering not the counsel of God, nor the way of the Lord, seeking for relief, trying to find answers within, acting like they are the ones who held control, acting like they are the ones who held control and dominion over their lives, forgetting that God is king. But this black backdrop actually is used by God in a bigger, greater, and marvelous way. God will use this dark time to make his sovereign grace, his loyal love, and the faith of the remnant shine bright, like a diamond on a black fell placed there so its attributes will be more evident. I have shared this with some of you. My dad, before he, he was a pastor, he, he was a jewelry maker. 
and he had his workshop in the house. And he would work with gold, with, with silver, and, and semi-precious stones, and, and precious stones. And he would have diamonds sometimes in the, in the house. And when the clients will come to check on the diamonds, the diamonds are pla placed on a black felt. That way the diamonds look prettier. Their, their shine is it's more beautiful. It looks more, more appealing. You see, you see blackness, and in the middle, in the center, you see, you see this little, little pebble that shines. This is what's going on with God's love, with God's grace, with God's providence in here. The, the black field is, is where the, this diamond of the grace and the mercy of God has been placed. So it shines, and it looks beautiful. The story of Ruth will teach us that, God, that God's plans and ultimate purposes cannot be hidden. They will shine even in the bleakest circumstances. And this might sound simplistic, but to apply this knowledge to our lives, to our everyday situations, that's the trial, that's the struggle. That we know, um, that we know what Romans um, says in, in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know... And we know, it's not asking you to know, it's telling you that you know, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things, capital letters, neon, all things. Not some, not the ones you like, not the ones that you feel like it. All things. And this should be a comfort for our souls. This should be also a confrontation for ourselves. How often have we acted prudently according to the supposed logical way of the world, following their advice and their counsel, but not turn to God and His Word? Elimelech sought to provide for his family in his heart and own opinion. He did the right thing. Just going for a little bit. How bad can it be? We're going till things get better. But then he died. And his sojourn became his final dwelling place for him and his sons. Earthly shortcuts might take us to places but also will lead us to painful consequences. Consequences. But let us not despair. And Ruth, we are reminded that those who return to the Lord, to those who are embraced by His grace and steadfast love, will enjoy the blessings of the very presence of God. That, that even in spite of the darkness of our sin and failure, and not only in spite of our sin, but even through it, he will show us that He is more than capable to turn things around and bless us and show us the greater good of His plan and purposes in us and in His world. So the first point, the mini lesson here in these five verses loaded with information is this. When facing our everyday lives, our everyday situations, are we taking the worldly shortcut or going up through the road of faith. For husbands and fathers, where are you leading your families? To the rest of the Lord or to the road of tragedy? 
And for all of us, is our faith a nice slogan or the, driving, or the driven force through which we strive this life on this side of eternity? Is your faith abiding in Christ? Can you sing with the saints of God my song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrow rise, my joy when trials are abounding, your faithfulness my refuge in the night? Can you sing that with all of your heart? Can you put the weight on the words? Or as Charles Spurgeon would say, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Could you say that you have the same attitude? Could we say that our hearts are, are kissing the wave that throws us out, but are leading us to the rock of ages, to, to, the, to the refuge that it is our Lord? Will the trials of life push us towards God, or will we question His goodness? Would we place ourselves, our hearts, at the feet of our Savior and strength our faith in Him? Five verses down. Let's keep going. This was just a, a, a pre-workout. <laughs> so drink some water. Because now it's getting, getting... We're going uphill now. Ebenezer. Spoiler alert. I'm jumping ahead. Ebenezer hasn't come yet. But I'm not jumping too much ahead. In 1 Samuel 7, during the end of the time of the judges, Israel experienced... This revival under the leadership of Samuel. The nation repents of their sin, destroys their idols, and begins to seek the Lord. This is a new era. And it was during this time of repentance and renewal that the enemy dared to attack the people of God. And, and we, we are told in, in 1 Samuel um, chapter 7, verse 10, While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, their offerings are back on the picture which means there is production, there's animals, there's cattle, they're fat, they're good, make, make, make offerings. While Simon was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. And the Israelites went out to the battle against the invader, and God sent them supernatural help. And that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. So Israelites, big, Israel's victory over the Philistines was decisive. Several cities the Palestines had captured were restored to Israel, and it was a long time before the Philistines tried to invade Israel again. And to commemorate the divine victory, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shan, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And why mention the Ebenezer of God now? Because what we see here in the verses 6 to 22 of the first chapter of Ruth are the buildup of this moment. And the lives of Naomi and Ruth, but also for us. That this stone of help will serve us as a reminder that the loyal love of God and His sovereignty and redeeming grace for those who belong to him cannot be frustrated. Not even by our foolish choices. Because he can even use that for the sake of his glory. Great mystery. Wondrous blessing. Amazing grace. 
loyal love, sovereign grace. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. After experiencing in the first place the death of her husband, Naomi, 10 years later, has to endure the death of his two sons. And I'm not done playing what is going on here. It is terrible. It's painful. I have two sons, and I cannot even to begin to imagine what it would feel like to lose one of them. The word aroused here is related to the action of lifting up after a period of mourning. And we actually have the, the same use of the word in David's story after he lost his own child. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. So in a similar way, Naomi arose and set his mind and heart on the return to her homeland. And the use of the singular, she might return, implies that she wasn't expecting to have company in this return. And, and actually, the word used for return in verse 6 also has embedded a sense of repentance. If you know, repentance means to turn back. To turn back from our way to go back to God. But the sense we get from this return of Naomi is that it's mixed with self-pity and bitterness, as we can see in the rest of the chapter. But we also start seeing glimpses of Yahweh's mercy. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This should grasp our attention instantly. She heard the news of God's mercy and the fields of Moab. The news are, are flying out. The grace of God is being known throughout the land. The news of the mercy of God are being known throughout the land, even in Moab. It's a little literary detail here, but it's very important. This is the starting point of the revelation that this woman, Naomi, the remnant of, his, of this family had. This is God working the expectation of grace in her heart. The word visited will be translated in different ways in scriptures, such as how God noticed, or how he took care, or how, how he was concerned about this visitation of the Lord and the end of the famine are evidence of his mercy for his people. But reality bites. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return it to you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. By the structure of the narrative, it seems that Ruth and Orpah were already on their way with Naomi back to Israel. And it seems that it's here where reality brings a blow to Naomi. How are things going to be for three widows, two foreign, two Moabites, nonetheless, and Bethlehem? So imagine the stigma that this whole situation will bring over these women. 
And haven't they had enough already? So she gives them two commands. Go and return. Commanding them to basically repent of following her down that road. Naomi is acting in face of this reality that the world was already unkind to widows. But Judah was no place for Moabite widows. So it could be taken as a noble and wise suggestion. But this is earthly wisdom. And we know that God has a way of dealing with it. A way that overthrew the wisdom of the world. And then in the second part of verse 8, we have this declaration. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Kindly, here is the word hesed. It is honestly becoming my favorite word. The loyal love of God, the unfailing love, the tender mercies of God, his loving kindness. Grace, love, mercy, and loyalty in one term. Ruth and Opa have dealt displaying aspects of this type of love with the sons of Naomi and herself. So Naomi invokes the name of Yahweh and his blessing upon these women. Her desire is that Israel covenant is that the Israel covenant keeping God, the God of mercy and love, the God of, of grace and kindness, deal with them with this covenantal love. As difficult as it is, Naomi is doing the talk. And she invokes the name of Yahweh and prays. And she prays, and this is the prayer of, of Naomi, for rest. That the Lord grant you my, that the Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. That they find a place of permanence, of stability. That they can go back and that the Lord will bless them with new marriages. She invokes blessing after blessing upon these Moabite women. And they cry and they wept together. And there is a bit of a back and forth in the conversation. Lead us to see that Naomi, Ruth, and Opa are actually aware of, to some degree, about the provision of the liberate marriage as recorded in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 7. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son of whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name might not be blooded, blotted out of Israel. Naomi is facing reality with this continuous earthly wisdom. Go back and remarry in your land. And if you come with me, there's only hopelessness awaiting. The mixture of reality and bitterness that contrasts with the displays of faith. Now, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to, to me for, you, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lift up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi knows that this is the Lord's doing. But she's also being honest about how she feels about it. And that she tells us something too. And we have learned from, from our studies, from our sermons previously in the Psalms, that God expects us to go to him, not with hypocrisy in our hearts, as he knows. And we should always remember that he knows. 
but he wants us to acknowledge. He wants us to know. So Naomi is, is, is it's bitter. <laughs> he is Mara at this stage. But it's a mixture of faith in, within Ruth continues to refuse to take Naomi's command, and she would not abandon. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And the further manifestation of this hesed, loyal love expressed by these young women of Moab. And here we see not just a glimpse, but a radiance. Ruth's pledge of loyalty. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. For your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you died, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. The first part of this pledge reflects the determination of Ruth, no matter what comes, I'm coming with you. But the second part includes a pledge not only to, to remain next to, to Naomi, to, to remain close to her, but a pledge to forsake her own heritage, her gods, he turned from her kinsmen, and the religion of her culture. Ruth with beautiful humbleness invokes the name of Yahweh, and your God be my God. She answers Naomi's plead with covenantal language. And see the parallelism between the promise made to Abraham by God and the language used by Ruth. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And also, the, the poetic pledge of Ruth reminds us of Leviticus 26, verse 12, and Exodus 6, 7. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, says the Lord, and you shall be my people. And then the next one says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. How does a Moabite widow express in such a beautiful way her pledge, not only to Naomi, but ultimately to the God of Israel? God's providence. That's the answer. This is, a, this is the moment of Ruth's conversion. I was, I was listening to um, Alistair Begg sharing a story while, while I was doing my, my research. And he shared this story. He, he was at a coffee shop one, one morning. And he would have the, avid, the habit of going to different coffee places around the, the, the area where he lived. And he would always carry his Bible. And he will sit and wait till someone bites the, <laughs> the, um, the, the hook. And, and he sat and wait for his soda. And, and the waitress approached. And he saw him and he saw his Bible on the table. And she asked him, you Christian? He said, yes, he said. Me also Christian, she said, back in China. And Beg, Alistair Beg asked, how did you become a Christian in China of all places? And she looked at him and said, I entered through the narrow gate. 
I entered through narrow gate. And this is Ruth's narrow gate moment. She's living everything but gaining more than anything she can ever imagine. She makes her call, I won't go back to my land, to my house, to the house of my ancestors to find rest there. I give up everything. It doesn't matter because I will have the Lord Yahweh. In this sort of poem of Ruth, we can relate to our own transformation. So I want to invite you to, this, to use this opportunity this day to remember when you enter through the narrow gate. When the word of God spoke to your heart and, and the darkness gave way to the light. When you had stone, heart became one of flesh and started to pump life. Abundant, blessed life, life everlasting, life forever. They returned to Israel. They arrived in late April. The harvest of, of Bali had started. There are fields where they can glean in. The return of Naomi and Ruth testifies of God's mercy. And even if she can't see it, even if she can't acknowledge it, that they return at the beginning of the barley season of harvest testifies of God's mercy. But Naomi will see it. She will not remain bitter. She will see it. She will see the goodness of the Lord. And she will acknowledge it. Just not yet. For now, it's the narrative and its author that testify to us about God's mercy. One final thought. The book of Ruth means to, it's meant to reveal God's loyal love and sovereign redemption. It will be used by God to encourage the faith of his faithful remnant. We'll see that even in the midst of and through the pain and consequences of sin, his love and sovereign grace will shine. And we need to pray that the Lord grant us understanding <coughs> Understanding that even, through, even though we have sinned, he still is merciful and is still at work for his purposes, for our good and for his glory. Let us see the example of Naomi and not look at our circumstances from an earthly perspective. Let us in humbleness to submit to the Lord and he will exalt us. Let us remember the words of the, of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome in Romans 2, 4. That God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. At the same time, let us look at those that as Naomi is experiencing bitterness. Those that are like Naomi experiencing bitterness. Let us extend grace to those persons to those people, tender love to them. Not justification, but caring hard for those who are in the bitter road of life. Let us ask the Lord our God to help us to see his wondrous mercy, especially when we are tempted to see bitterness, emptiness, and calamity. Let us look up to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, even in the midst of our pain. 
Let us praise his name because he is merciful and his steadfast love endures forever. And this is the gospel in the first chapter of Ruth, that God is a God that not only promises, but a God who delivers and fulfills. We've been drawn near by God to God. It is his hand that has reached out to us. In Christ Jesus, Yahweh has come to meet us in the road and made us return to him, back to the land of milk, Yahweh has come to meet us in the road and made us return to him, back to the land of milk and honey, to the land of rest, to the land of eternal harvest. Rejoice. It is the Lord your God who has come to your encounter and has given you a place among his people Belonging to his promise, a family, a title. Remember, through one man and his seed, God has blessed the nations of the earth. And the steadfast love of God has reached us from Bethlehem to Australia to the corners of the earth. The crimson flow has paid the debt. The pierced body of our Lord Jesus satisfied the justice and demands of our holy God. So we come now, come to the table, grab your seat, let us rejoice. Enjoy this day, a day of remembrance, a day of praise, because the Lord is good and faithful. His steadfast love endures forever and ever. Amen. Lord our God, we pray and give thanks and praise to your name, because you are good. And you have been good to us, and you have been dealing with us, not in bitterness, but in the sweetness of your love. And the warmth of your embrace. You have called us from the darkness, darkness to your marvelous light. We have been made royal priesthood, representatives of your glory on earth. You called us your child. You called us sons and daughters. You called us your own. Help us to rejoice. Help us to remember, not just today, but every day of our lives, that it is your steadfast love, your loving kindness, your tender care for us, that we can live. And not just here on earth, but forever in your presence. We pray and we bless your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.